Lyndon Lopate at Large. I'm Lyndon Lopate. For many years after the end of the Cold War, the United States played a key leadership role in stabilizing the global system, providing public goods and fostering multilateral problem solving. But Roland Rich contends that this approach to world order has broken down, and in the current post-American world, the United Nations is the only body capable of generating a peaceful and cooperative order. In his new book, The United Nations as Leviathan, Global Governance in the Post-American World, Mr. Rich asks, how effective is the U.N.? The book is published by Hamilton Books and brings Roland Rich, who has served as an Australian ambassador and head of the United Nations Democracy Fund, to our show. He's currently the director of the Master of Arts program in United Nations and Global Policy Studies at Rutgers University. Welcome. Thank you very much, Lena. The League of Nations was founded in January 1920, and it was the first worldwide governmental organization with a principal mission of maintaining world peace, and it obviously failed in that mission. So, You know, that, that is certainly true, but actually, Leonard, the first 10 years of the League of Nations existence was a halcyon period. And the League um, was able to settle a number of disputes that were threatening to spill into war. Um, and um, it looked like a roaring success in the roaring 20s. When the Depression hit and the world slid into a beggar thy neighbor set of policies, that's when the League of Nations became ineffective and was not able to then stop wars in Manchuria and Ethiopia, although it did take action when Russia invaded Finland and, and, and the Soviet Union, sorry, the Soviet Union was the only country ever to face enforcement action by the League of Nations. Mm-hmm. It was expelled in 1940. Wasn't the United Nations established after World War II with the aim of preventing future world wars, although Donald Trump has warned of Joe Biden potentially dragging the United States into World War II? Well, it it was certainly formed with the... He doesn't know that World War II already happened. (laughs) Yeah. you know, I think if we spend all afternoon correcting Donald Trump, Leonard will do nothing else. Okay, you uh, want to um, do that show next week, maybe? <laughs> Go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, yes, it was intended to do the job that the League of Nations had been intended to do, and that was to, you know, after the Great War, the war to end all wars, that there would be no other. And then within 20 years, we lived through a, a devastating World War II. But the the major concept of how that version of the UN would change was that instead of being a club of equals, um, subject to the unanimity rule in its decision-making, the UN would be a club of great powers. And the great powers would guarantee the success of the UN and the success of the UN mission. That was the Roosevelt idea at the time. And there have been periods in the UN history when that idea actually worked. But it's an undemocratic idea and it excludes an awful lot of countries. 
It, it is an undemocratic idea, but, you know, Leonard, I, I think it was Francis Fukuyama who argued that there are some concepts that cannot be scaled up. Um, uh, democracy lives in the nation state and in, in, in subunits of the nation state. Uh, Europe is trying to make it exist in a continent, in a region. Um, but I don't think democracy as a voting concept can scale up to the global level. Um, the world is just too different. The, the units of the global uh, population, that is the Westphalian nation state, are so different from each other that it just doesn't make sense to think of the method of decision-making of the world to be democratic. Well, there have been uh, lots of wars since the UN was uh, established. So how effective has it been in preventing wars? There, there have been many wars. Um, they, they've they tended to be, um, in the early periods of the UN, they tended to be decolonization wars. And then they tended to be uh, wars between fractious neighbors. Mm -hmm. um, and, and in the more recent period, they've tended to be civil wars. Mm -hmm. But, Leonard, what we haven't had in the UN period is a war between the superpowers and, or a war between the great powers. And um, one can give different explanations for why that's been the case, but a possible explanation is that they all share a, a, an identity and they share a platform and, and that they share some commonality in the UN Security Council. But although the United States isn't engaged in the war in Ukraine, in a way it still is, so isn't that kind of like a war between the superpowers? Yes, it's, it, it is in, in, in the sense that, that Russia decided to invade the Ukraine for, for no good reason. And um, as as uh, uh, President Biden said in the General Assembly uh, yesterday, um, the world just has to stand up to that act of aggression. Um, but I think the great powers in the Security Council will be very careful to try to avoid a direct confrontation between themselves. Um, and I think that's the administration perspective as we speak. In uh, his speech yesterday, Biden said, I ask you this, if we abandon the core principles of the United Nations Charter to appease an aggressor, can any member state in this body feel confident that they are protected? Of course, and, and it, it, of course, he has to rally Republicans in Congress to support Ukraine first. So let, let's break that down. Firstly, let's look at that statement in the international system to the audience to which it was directed. And, and let me say, I think it was one of President Biden's best speeches in his presidency. Hmm. Um, and and that statement, that question he put to the General Assembly will have resonance because there are lots of countries who feel the hot breath of a powerful neighbor. And it's all those countries who will be asking themselves, is Russia's invasion of Ukraine a precedent for my powerful neighbor invading my country? And Zelensky and, and, said the Ukraine's fight is the world's fight. But Russia has veto power. Has Russia responded? Well, 
you know, at, as there's no possibility that the UN will formally involve itself in the Ukraine uh, um, war for the simple reason that Russia will veto any such uh, involvement. But that doesn't stop um, other countries from exercising what the UN Charter calls the inherent right of self-defence and to um, help others to exercise the inherent right of self-defence. Ukraine is clearly exercising the inherent right of self-defense and Europe and America and other countries are assisting Ukraine in that regard. But no, there won't be any UN involvement in the war. Hopefully at some later stage, um, there'll be a withdrawal by Russia and maybe the UN will get involved in the peace or the peacekeeping process. A good idea, it seems to me, would be to take the veto power away from the countries that have it, but that's unlikely. In fact, they would veto any <laughs> such suggestion, wouldn't they? Well, that's right. I mean, the veto power, as designed at the conference in San Francisco in 1946, basically gives the five powers the veto over changing the veto. Who are the five? Um, and are they the and, same five powers today? Well, at, well, three of them are still powers, uh, and two of them, um, France and the United Kingdom, in their defence, sometimes act as if they're powers, and we do need actors that, that do things like that. I, I, I was asked the question in class the other day, uh, um, you know, why isn't it more logical for, for Germany and Japan, you know, who are much larger economies, to be involved in the Security Council as permanent members? But the great difference is this. When the UK and France engage in enforcement action on behalf of the UN, as they have done in a number of occasions, um, using, you know, the might of their own militaries in that regard, um, and uh, uh, the publics of those two countries are willing to accept the sacrifices that that entails. On the other hand, with the very first body bag that went back to Tokyo, the Japanese government would fall. Um, um, it's simply, you know, not in the same ballpark in terms of responsibility for peace and security that that. France and the United Kingdom have assumed for decades and are in a sense designed to, to, to continue to assume that responsibility. So, you know, I, I, I don't think, you know, that's an issue. I don't think that's the key issue. Um, in my book, Leonard, while we're talking about this, let me say, um, I put forward a proposal that was first put forward, interestingly enough, by the delegation of Australia in 1946. And that proposal is that the only use of the veto will be for action, mandatory action, under Chapter 7 of the Charter. That is where the Security Council actually orders things to happen. Um, for that, the veto would continue. But for no other action would the veto continue, including things like the appointment of the Secretary-General. So, um, and I so how also often map out, it, have, have vetoes been invoked? Uh, uh, 
so many times, Leonard, and and sometimes we don't even know they've been invoked because they've it hasn't been formally invoked, but the proposal has died because of the threat of the veto. And and uh, to say face the proponent of a proposal will not put it forward mm. at that point, um, but clearly the veto power is being abused by the P five. Um, I, I I think to try to take it away completely is to really cause an end to the UN um, because China and, and and Russia simply won't tolerate that. But, but I argue that by retaining the veto over mandatory action, their national interests remain covered. But lots of other things can then be allowed to go through um, and, and allow the UN to do the work it was supposed to do in the first place. My guest on today's London Low Pit at Large is Roland Rich. His latest book, The United Nations as Leviathan, Global Governance in the Post-American World, published by Hamilton Books. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. You write that we're currently in a post-American world, and the United Nations is the only body capable of generating a peaceful and cooperative order. Uh, But you make the case for turning the UN into a sort of benign leviathan, in, in, in this book, were you thinking about Thomas Hobbes' 1651 book, Leviathan, which was about the structure of society and legitimate government? It's an analogy with the Hobbes idea. Mm-hmm. Um, the Hobbes idea concerned lawlessness and civil war in um, England and the need for a, a strong central authority um, I'm taking an analogy with that in that we have a, an international system and an international community that is um, at times organized and at times anarchic. But the, we need the same solution that Hobbes came up with, a UN Leviathan to be able to lead the world through its global problems. Now, why, why Leviathan? Think, Isn't the Leviathan a sea serpent that was referenced in several books of the Hebrew Bible? It, it, it yes. Um, um, I think Hobbes gave it a new meaning, and it's the Hobbesian meaning that I'm using. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Finish your thought. Okay. Um, the, the 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 term you used, Leonard benign Leviathan, I think is important Mm. insofar as it's never been an option or a possibility or even a good idea for the UN to be a world government and for the UN to, you know, be uh, analogous to a sovereign state and have a monopoly on the uh, on the um, uh, use of the legitimate use of force. Um, that's never been a, a good idea, and I can I cannot imagine a UN playing that role. It needs to be a leviathan by the support it has from the people of the world and from the authority authority that it exerts through its actions and through the bully pulpit that the Secretary General um, has at, at his and hopefully one day her disposal. Um, and 
you know, we are searching for leadership like that. Um, we're searching for leadership that will get us through the crises, the emergencies that we are now entering um, beyond war and peace, emergencies in relation, obviously, to the climate emergency and to let's think about the next pandemic as well, which may be far more severe than the COVID pandemic. Um, when when these emergencies are upon us, who will lead us? Well, there used to be a time when we all look to Washington mm -hmm. and the United States to do that leadership. And that's why we lived in this American world, in the American design world. When did the that world end? Designed, the world designed by the United States in, in, 19, in the 1940s. When did it end? I think it started to unravel in um, the Bush Jr. administration. Um, Prior to that, we had a very internationalist Republican administration in the form of Bush Sr. And we had an internationalist um, administration in the form of the Clinton administration, which called itself the indispensable nation in relation to world affairs. But um, the invasion of um, Iraq, contrary to international law, without UN um, authority, started to unravel the process and the great shock of the Trump administration has really meant that we can no longer have confidence in the American administration confidently playing that role. And then one asks oneself, well, if the American administration doesn't play that role, who else will play that role? Um, and, and oddly enough, there is a candidate out there and that candidate is China. Um, that sees itself as the Middle Kingdom and the center of the world and sees its role naturally as one of leadership and for all other countries to play, to pay tribute to China. Um, but that would be a world I would not want to live in, mm. a world in which a one-party state is the guarantor of global peace and global cooperation. Um, and um, I, I don't think that it's a viable solution to the, the problem, and that's why I put forward the solution of the UN as the benign Leviathan to take the leadership role to guide us through the crises we're about to enter. What was Thomas Hobbes' social contract theory? Doesn't it say that people live together in accordance of an agreement that established moral and political rules of behavior? How does that apply here? Well, in, in, in so far, it... The, the the social contract idea, I think Rousseau developed it. The social contract um, idea would 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 flow from a consensus, some some sort of consensus, not of the governments of the world, but of the people of the world that they wish to deal with the global problems that they are facing, um, and and that consensus. Uh, um, it, it, it obviously will never be a unanimous sort of view, but I think we see it already developing in young people around the world who have so little confidence in their future hmm. um, and see so little being done to try to defend their future and defend the planet in which we're living I think they would form that consensus that we need benign leadership from a global body that um, 
isn't out to rip them off or to invade them or, or benefit from conquest, but is trying to solve global problems through means of cooperation. You cite Hedley Bull, who was an Australian expert on international relations during the second half of the last century. Didn't he describe contemporary international relations as a natural state of anarchy? Yes, yes. Uh, um, His book, The Anarchic Society, talks about uh, um, the international community in that form. And ultimately, ultimately, given the lack of enforcement power generally of international law, that is a, an arguable proposition. But what we've, what we've actually seen, Leonard, um, is that in so many ways, not, not to do with war and peace, but to do with all sorts of other aspects of human conduct, um, the countries of the world have cooperated pretty well. Uh, um, and on issues of communications and transport and trade, um, to a large extent on health. I mean, we've eradicated diseases through cooperation and so forth. We've seen um, nations of the world through the UN deciding to work together for the common good. And um, in a sense, Hedley Bull remains right in that one of the choices of an anarchic world is a choice not to be anarchic. Um, and, and in most circumstances, that's how the world has behaved, but not in all circumstances, and certainly not when you have tyrants declaring war on their neighbours. Are you arguing that governments around the world should cede some authority to the UN to develop solutions and build coalitions to tackle pressing problems? Governments of the world have done that for decades and uh, continue to do that. There are literally hundreds of UN treaties dealing with aviation, dealing with shipping, dealing with protection of endangered species, uh, um, dealing with environmental issues where governments of the world have decided to abide by the rules of UN treaties that they, that they helped, uh, negotiate, um, and, and thereby give a supernatural national body some say and some organizational power over the conduct of that particular realm. Uh, the World Trade Organization is the most recent and quite a powerful example of that. So there's nothing particularly unusual about national governments ceding some power to a supranational national body for the common good. That's been happening for decades and will continue to happen. Should membership be extended beyond nation states to the wider constituencies of global business and and civil society? Yes, Leonard. Uh, um, and, and that's one of the key ideas in, in my book. That, that's um, why I asked. Thank you. Thank you for uh, putting it up on the tee and, and let me try to hit that ball. Um, um, it, it's, it's one of the key ideas in the book because I think in the 21st century, surely we need to accept that the nation state is not the only key actor on the planet. Mm. Um, I'm not saying the nation state will wither away. Um, I think it will be with us for quite a long time to come, though not forever. Um, 
And but what we need to recognize is that there there are other powerful actors and that to find solutions to global problems, we need to work with these other powerful actors. So um, the book proposes um, the Davos gambit, and it is a gamble in a sense because we know that the corporate world may not be popular with some parts of of, of um, civil society, but nevertheless, um, there is no solution without the cooperation of the corporate world, and there is no solution without the cooperation of the civil society world. And the book proposes that there be three general assemblies, uh, one be for governments, and that is the existing UN General Assembly, one be for the business world, and a third be for the civil society world. And that each of these general assemblies have an equal say in the agenda of the global community and in finding solutions to the crises the global community is encountering. So you're proposing opening things up. Should the Secretary General not be selected by the permanent five member states of the Security Council? But by the wider General Assembly? Absolutely. You know, Leonard, I mean, look, I've known quite a few of these gentlemen. Um, They're admirable individuals and so forth. But let's be realistic. Um, Boutros Boutros Ghali was not given a second term because Madeleine Albright didn't like him. Um, and she thought he was too uh, um, in favour of the South rather than the North in the way the UN was behaving. Um, uh, um, Kofi Annan had to was selected partly because the P5 thought he was a failed bureaucrat. You know, Kofi Annan was in charge of UN peacekeeping when the Rwanda genocide occurred and the UN proved itself to be so uh, hopeless in response. Um, And so they thought he would be very pliable and they needed an African to finish the term of the Egyptian Secretary General. But Kofi Annan turned out to have a weapon at his disposal that the P5 dread, and that is the capacity to use the Secretary General's bully pulpit. Kofi Annan was able to speak to global audiences above the heads of P5 governments, to speak pleasingly, to be understood, to have influence with those people that the P5 could not control. So when Kofi's second term came to an end, they decided to select somebody, an an excellent individual, I, I... uh, I'm, I'm fond of him as an individual, but his one quality for be, to be Secretary General was that he was inarticulate. And mm-hmm. Ban Ki-moon can hardly get a, a, a speech out in English and is even worse in French. Uh, that was the quality that the P5 wanted in a Secretary General. And, um, and look, surely we can't go on having a global organization trying to deal with global problems and having the P5 decide to select individuals because they can't address an audience. Uh, um, what we need, we need a, a, a real leader for the Secretary General that people can look up to, that people can believe, that has both 
capacity and probity and a capacity to speak to a crowd. That's Is that so much? Are we incapable of finding somebody like that? I don't think so. Um, and that's what we need. And the idea of the three assemblies, one idea, and the idea of limiting the veto is to achieve that outcome, to get somebody like that into the Secretary, Secretary Generalship. And you argue that this is an optimistic book, that uh, it says the global governance is within our reach. Everything you've been saying so far sounds a little bit depressing to me. Um, look, there's not a lot that um, we um, see at the UN that is uplifting. Um, there's a little bit, but there's not a lot. It's 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 an optimistic book in that I think I'm pointing to an optimistic future. I'm pointing to a solution. I'm pointing to a leadership solution in a time of crisis that we've entered. Uh, and um, in that sense, rather than, you know, um, uh, um, mourning the, the problems and, and the losses, um, it's trying to piece together a, a, a system that will be able to put together solutions to things. And, 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 you know, actually solutions may not even be the right word because some of the problems we are about to enter, um, um, the, me- the most we can hope to achieve is to manage them. <laughs> I don't think we'll be able to solve some of these problems, but we've got to be able to manage them so they don't destabilize the, you know, other issues and, and, and other processes that are going on. That's why we need leadership. That's why the UN, US is not providing that leadership. I don't think can anymore. And I'll, I'd like to come back to that in, 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 a, in a moment. Um, well, and we and my solution look, right. is the optimistic one that we have an organization that can do that for us. Let's get it right. Let's make UN 3.0 the organization that can manage these problems for us. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large at WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. my conversation with Roland Rich. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, The United Nations as Leviathan, Global Governance in the Post-American World. Just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we will be happy to send you a copy. That's give in the number 2WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that donation of $50 or more in the name of London Lopez at Large, and we thank you very much. And return now to Roland Rich, again, the book, the United Nations as Leviathan, Global Governance in the Post-American World from Hamilton Books. And Mr. Rich served as an Australian ambassador and head of the United Nations Democracy Fund, and he's currently at uh, teaching at Rutgers University, teaching about the UN, in fact, at Rutgers University. Now, 
You're calling the the what you would like to see UN three. How is UN two different from UN one? Well, th- there were significant differences between the League of Nations and the United Nations. The League of Nations is UN one point oh, and the UN two point oh. So significant difference, and and the main one I mentioned, instead of a a, a group of equals uh, um, governing by unanimity. Um, the UN became a um, an organization guaranteed by the powers that won the Second World War, um, and um, you know that was a, a that was a, a Roosevelt concept. And what it ultimately sort of what it ultimately produced was an enormous responsibility on the shoulders of these great powers. Um, uh, unfortunately. Um, although there have been periods of cooperation, in particular in the 1990s, um, after the end of the Cold War, um, the great powers have not been able to work together effectively. Um, and um, sort of in the place of effective cooperation, we've had to, instead of having the great powers guarantee the work of the UN, we've had the United States as a sort of... Um, uh, um, default guarantor. Now, the US um, was able to play that role for decades. Um, and it was able to play that role because among the American people, there was a, a consensus that that was the right role for the United States to be playing, that the greatest generation sac- sacrifice called for that role. Um, to be played by the United States. But hasn't and, there been uh, an increased isolationism of the United States, which is creating a power vacuum? Uh, isolationism has always been one aspect of American politics. There's, it, it's waxed and waned. Um, but in the immediate World War II era, for the next 50 years or so, um, it was pretty much internationalist-minded, and and that was the consensus of the American people. That consensus has fallen apart. It seems to me it has fallen apart, Um, and that without that sort of a consensus, of course, there'll always be gadflies, Leonard. There'll always be uh, um, critics on the the margins, but but aside from those gadflies, we, we had a consensus that the U.S. would be the guarantor and would in some ways, even do self-sacrificing things to guarantee the work of the UN and and global cooperation. But I think it's very hard to argue that case today. And and I I guess you could say it's not that different from other aspects of governance. Why should there be a consensus on foreign policy when there doesn't seem to be a consensus in the United States on just about any policy? Well, Antonio Guterres, the U.N. Secretary General, said yesterday that the efforts of world leaders to address the climate crisis had come up abysmally short, his words. How much of a role can the U.N. play in combating climate change? Well, look, um, um, I I feel sympathy with uh, Secretary General Guterres. um, uh, and, And, you know, I've been quite impressed with his attempts to assert a position for the Secretary General. Um, Again, he's not the greatest speaker in the world, and I think that was one of the reasons he was selected. 
But leaving that aside, um, I, I share his frustration and I share his frustration insofar as we have to stop relying on governments to solve this problem because governments are simply not going to do it. Well, how would the UN do it? How would the UN work to, working to, uh, to through, limit climate change? Working not just with governments, but with the corporate world and global civil society. There we will be able to put forward, to, to, to cobble together a partnership that can do something about climate change. We can't do anything without the corporate world because that's where innovation and investment comes from. Uh, um, and I think, although we can talk, we can always identify bad actors in the corporate world. It seems to me that the corporate world has a longer term outlook that understands that this problem needs to at least be managed and mitigated. It's too late to solve it. It's too late to solve the climate emergency, but it can at least be managed and mitigated so that you know, we can carry on uh, um, doing other things. But if we rely solely on governments, we will get what we've had for 20 years now, empty promises and very little delivery. Well, can the UN actually push countries to limit carbon emissions and things like that? The 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 UN uh, um, um, can call I mean, on the countries American, to cooperate. The U.S. Congress is divided on all those things even today. And we have a former president who claimed that windmills were a bad idea in creating yeah. electricity. Yeah. Look, uh, um, I, I, I don't think we should argue about whether that we are living through a, a global emergency or not. We clearly are, and we see the, the signs of it just about weekly. We have large bits of evidence coming our way. You know, Leonard, I was interviewed by a radio station in, in Virginia, not, not Washington, D.C., Virginia, uh, rural Virginia. And, and the interviewer asked me, said to me that, you know, a lot of his listeners um, don't believe in climate change and don't believe the scientists. And what would I say to them? Um, and, and I said, well, I don't know why you don't want to believe the scientists, but if you don't want to believe the scientists, believe the insurance industry because the insurance industry has no ideology. They only have a bottom line and they're not going to insure you against climate risk anymore. So believe them. They know it's a, it's upon us. And bit by bit, we're seeing the insurance industry withdrawing from markets that they feel are, uh, are too prone to climate risk. You argue that the UN should become less reliant on funding from its member states, uh, a dependence that limits and shapes its operations. So you, you're suggesting that there should be international taxes on things like currency transactions and airline travel that could be a, a source of funding for the UN instead? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you can't have government without taxation. Uh, you, you can't have governance without taxation. Um, um, and, and the, the current system, um, has the UN dependent on the, um, assessed contributions of the member states just to keep the secretariat running. Um, it comes to about, 
three billion a, a year. It's a pittance uh, compared to the problems that we deal with. I think the the State Department is funded at forty billion a year. Just to give you uh, you know some relativity there. So my proposal in the book is the UN needs to govern globalization, and the UN needs to tax globalization, and to do so, it needs to tax containers, it needs to tax aircraft, it needs to tax currency transaction, and it needs to tax arms sales. And those taxes, which, you know, need to be collected, and this is an important point, need to be collected without the intermediation of governments, because governments will not cooperate. So you've got to get the taxes straight from the industry groups who hopefully will cooperate and they are, they will be part of the, the new UN. They'll be participants in the new UN system. Um, that sort of taxation will bring the UN $100 billion a year in round figures. And you know what that adds up to, Leonard? That adds, adds up to $25 a year for every urban consumer who are the beneficiaries and the users of globalization. That's what if a, a tax, because ultimately the companies will pass the tax on to the consumer and therefore what the average consumer will pay to fund the UN will be $25 a year. Um, and what will that mean? It will free the UN from the control of the member states, including, of course, especially when there are Republican administrations, um, control over funding of the UN, because Republican administrations since the time of Ronald Reagan have either cut or slowed down that funding, regardless of the fact that they have a treaty obligation to pay that, uh, that amount. Um, and so let's, let's not uh, um, be dependent on governments funding the UN. Let's tax globalization, give the UN the confidence to have the, the funding to get things done. And, and here, Leonard, is where we really, you know, uh, have to decide what sort of organization the UN will be because $100 billion is a significant amount of money. It's, a, um, it's about, I, I guess, something like two-thirds of official development assistance today. So that's quite a significant amount of money. Um, and what the UN needs to do with that money is not do what it currently does, which is to be a project deliverer. Um, I've been in the field, I've worked in the UN. The UN is a terrible project deliverer. It's bureaucratic, it's slow, it lacks innovation. Uh, um, it's not the role that a global organization can play. What we do with that $100 billion is fund actors around the world who know how to get things done. And that's the role of the UN, to be that catalytic funder for um, all sorts of innovations, especially in the global south, um, to do with climate mitigation, to do with growing the market economy, to do with growing civil society and and countering the trend towards authoritarianism that we're seeing there. Um, that's what UN funding would do. And and it, it won't be, you know, when you fund the UN to deliver a project, 
you get a white man in a four-wheel drive vehicle and an expensive hotel. That's what you're funding. That's not what we want to do. Let's fund local people to do innovative and catalytic things. My guest is Roland Rich. His book, The United Nations as Leviathan, Global Governance in the Post-American World, is published by Hamilton Books. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. You were the Australian ambassador to the UN at one point. Were you uh, thinking differently in those days? Were you, what kind of message were you getting from your government? Well, I, I was an Australian delegate to the UN on a number of occasions. Um, I wasn't the ambassador to the UN. I was ambassador to a country called Laos uh, um, uh-huh. in Southeast Asia. But as a delegate um, to the UN, um, I was I was pretty much um, comfortable with the Australian posture at the United Nations insofar as there had been a, a pretty much a consensus view in Australia that being a, a small or middle power, Australia needed a well-functioning international system in which it could prosper. Um, and that if the world reverted to might is right, then Australia would suffer. So we had an interest in making the UN work. And in the various capacities where I represented Australia at the UN, with with only one exception, I was comfortable with um, uh, uh, my role and um, I, I de- delivered it as best I could. Hasn't the UN been pretty ineffective in dealing with the many millions of refugees around the world? You project the number could reach a billion. Yeah. Well, um the, the UN um, has b- both been a um, success story and a failure on the in the refugee space. Um, it's been a success story in various contexts, both after the First World War and after the Second World War. Um, the transfer of the of huge numbers of people who had fled their countries and so forth. Um, was something of a success. Um, in, in the First World War, the, um, a UN official called Nansen, um, a Norwegian gentleman, d- devised the Nansen passport. And, and you know, um, lots of people were returned to their home. After the Second World War, all over the world, some 20 million people were returned to their homes. Not everybody. So in, in a sense, the UN demonstrated what a global organization could do. Um, but... It hasn't done it much has to not- help the United States during this refugee crisis where we have been inundated by, by migrants. New York- okay. So, so, um, you know, I, I, uh, let, let's just make a distinction. Um, talking about what the UN does, the, the UN determines whether or not somebody is a, um, uh, refugee. Mm-hmm according to a definition of a refugee. Um, what's happening at the southern border may involve refugees, but mainly involves economic migrants. And and so there, you know, that's the way, um, that a distinction that we need to bear in mind. The 1951 convention says that a refugee is somebody who escapes from their home or cannot return because of a well-founded fear of persecution. 
for reasons such as race or religion or political view. So um, that's what, you know, and the UN has designated people who are in that situation. Um, the, the first solution for refugees is to try to get them back home. Um, but if that doesn't work, then another solution is resettlement. And the international community initially um, uh, showed its compassion in that regard. I think in the in the uh, 20th century, the United States was taking something like 250,000 refugees a year to resettle in the United States. And it seems to me the United States has benefited greatly from that influx of people from around the world. Many of whom um, now object to this new influx. Or their, well, their children object. Yeah, and... And, and the new influx is a mix of asylum seekers and economic migrants and also economic migrants using the asylum system to try to get their foot in the door. I have sympathy for them. Uh, um, and, and I think we need to find better solutions than we have. But surely the solution is not that the people of Central America move to North America. Uh, um, the best solution is for the people of Central America to stay in Central America with decent government. And that's the problem that we're facing. And in some ways, that's what the U.S. abandoned doing, is trying to ensure that there is decent government in Central uh, uh, Central America Um how that is done is is difficult. It's not an easy proposition. But, but you know, Leonard, it, it, there is one example that I can give you where it's actually happened. And, and I don't want to praise this country as having a great government because it has lots of deficiencies. But I read a figure the other day, more people are moving back to Mexico than are moving from Mexico to the United States. Mm -hmm. That is not Central Americans, but Mexicans. Why is that? Because Mexico has become a functioning economy and, and is many producing Americans, jobs. Many Americans are going to Mexico as well because it's comfortable, nice culture. And, it, and it's become a functioning economy. It's producing jobs. It's having elections. Um, it, there, there are all sorts of problems, especially on the on the drug trade side. But the reason that Mexico works is because of NAFTA. That's that internationalist idea of the United States to make the North America one market that solved the problem of Mexico. And and frankly, um, one of my students wrote an essay um, last year saying exactly that. If we want to solve Central America's problems, we've got to create a NAFTA for Central America as well. We have just about two minutes left, but I wanted to address one other thing. The UN has six principal operational organizations, the General Assembly, the Security Council, the Economic and Social Council, the International Court of Justice, the UN Secretariat, the Trusteeship, Trusteeship Council, although that council has been inactive since 1994, and it has specialized agencies, funds, and programs that include the World Bank Group, the World Health Organization, the World Food Program, UNESCO, UNICEF, and also non-governmental organizations, uh, Economic and Social Council and other agencies. Are they all working well together? And you have about a minute to answer, unfortunately. <laughs> Should we see well, a restructuring? Well, look, a lot of them are doing excellent and necessary work. 
Um, I think there can certainly be improvements at the at the margins in that regard. But let's fix the central body first, rather than toying around with the margins. Let's fix the Security Council. Let's fit, fix the veto power. Let's fix the Secretary General's appointment. Let's fix who makes decisions at the UN and who's involved in that decision making. Then the benefits will flow out from that central position. And I have to leave it there, unfortunately. My great thanks to Roland Rich. His book, The United Nations as Leviathan, Global Governance in the Post-American World, is from Hamilton Books. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. Thanks, Levin. I enjoyed it. Okay, well, unfortunately, that ends today's show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is londonlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the station coming to you. We're going through a rough time right now, uh, as are uh, all public radio stations, but especially BAI, which relies totally on listener support. And we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give in the number 2 WBAI.org because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else and as I mentioned earlier anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of London Lopate at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing The United Nations as Leviathan Global Governance in the Post-American World by Roland Rich so why not make that call right now 212-209-2950 go online to give to WBAI.org or you might also consider becoming a sustaining member what we call a BAI buddy for $10, $15, $20 a month as long as you want to do it it allows us to plan for the future and we will say thank you with a BAI tote bag to anybody who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more but either way I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies 100% on listener donations. We are the only station on New York Radio Dial that is 100% listener-sponsored. And your support is tax-deductible. So that's great. I hope you can join us again tomorrow when Ian Golden will discuss his book, Age of the City. We'll see you then.